Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Now for our first scripture reading today, it comes from Luke 16, 1 through 9. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 15 through 19a. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I begin this morning, I want to say thank you for the ways that you have been supporting this church in the absence of not being able to be present here in worship. We are only $15,000 behind in terms of our general budget giving for this year, which is pretty remarkable given that you have not been here for the last three months. And on top of that, you have been giving very generously to our community relief fund. I'm gonna talk more about that once I get into the sermon today, but if you were to add those two things together, we're actually ahead of where we were last year. And so I just want you to know that what you've been doing has really been making a difference in our community and I thank you for doing that even though you can't be here. 
I also wanted to say a few words about worship, which is that we're entering into our summer months. And normally during summer, we find ourselves in a situation where many people are going on vacations. They're not going to be as present. And we know that for some of you, when those Sunday mornings come, it's a nice day and you want to go out and enjoy the day. And you don't want to wait until 1030 to be able to do the worship service. And so from this point forward throughout the summer, we're not going to be having it streaming at a direct time. You can watch it at your leisure. And I hope that you will still have the opportunity to enjoy it, but also to enjoy the wonderful weather that we have outside. During the summer, of course, we've been doing our sermon series, Sans Peril, Without Equal. When someone or something is said to be sans peril, what we mean by that is that they are literally the best in the world, that they are a class above all the rest. Each week during this sermon series, we're looking at two people who are the best in their particular field. And we are asking the question, not only what made them successful, but what qualities and characteristics do they have that allowed them to rise to the top? And then we are looking at those qualities and characteristics through a biblical lens. And we're asking the question, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics to further our walk with God? And how can we use those things to better create God's kingdom here on earth? Last week, we talked about two of the greatest orders of all time. This week, we are talking about two of the greatest innovators of computer technology in the world. Of course, I'm referring to Steve Jobs of Apple and Bill Gates of Microsoft. Let's begin with Steve Jobs, who was born on February 24th, 1955. Jobs was not raised by his biological parents. Instead, he was adopted by Paul and Clara Jobs. And Paul Jobs, he worked as a repo man for a financial company. They lived a comfortable lifestyle, but they didn't have a ton of money. But it was enough that Paul was able to continually stock his woodshop. Now, his woodshop was an important aspect of Steve's childhood because Steve would follow his father into the woodshop all the time and marvel at his creations. His designs were simple and elegant. Say, for instance, they were going to be putting some cabinets into their house. Paul would take the time to meticulously think through every aspect of what he was going to create. And he wanted the design to not only fit into the home and be beautiful, but he wanted it to feel a certain way. Later on in his life, Steve Jobs would say that a lot of his design aesthetic could be attributed to his father and the way his father would design in the wood shop. Now, Steve Jobs himself had very little interest in woodworking, but he did love electronics. And when he got into high school, he had the opportunity to get into an electronics class in this little shack of a room on the side of his campus. Now, this class was not very well attended, and it was run by a man named John McCullum. McCullum was a retired Navy pilot who had learned all about electronics during his time in the Navy, and he wanted to teach young people about it. And so Steve enters into his class, and it is through this class that he meets McCullum's prize student, a man by the name of Steve Wozniak. Now, Wozniak was five years older than 
jobs at that particular point in time. But every so often, Wozniak would come back from college to be able to see McCollum because he had loved the class so much. Now, in spite of their age difference, Jobs and Wozniak, they were very tight friends. They found a kinship with each other. Wozniak was a genius with electronics and computer programming. And together, they started to try to learn more about electronics and programming. And they would create things together. And one of their first inventions was known as the blue box. Now, the blue box came about as a result of Wozniak reading an article in Esquire magazine. And this article talked about a group of hackers who had figured out how to make free long-distance calls on the AT&T network. So the way that it worked was that there were tones that routed calls on the network. And if you could mimic those tones, then it allowed you to make free long-distance phone calls. So Jobs and Wozniak, they read this article and they decided, you know what, we can do that. So within two months, Wozniak had created a working prototype. And the two of them then started to make free long-distance phone calls. And they used it mostly for prank phone calls. In fact, going so far as one time to call the Vatican in Rome asking for the Pope, pretending to be Henry Kissinger. But after a while of doing this, Jobs realized that they were sitting on a gold mine. That ultimately, if they wanted to, they could sell this to people who wanted to make free long distance phone calls. And so, for about $40 in parts, they could build one of these. And Jobs decided that they should sell it for about $150. So ultimately, they were making about $110 in profit, which in 1971, if you were to convert that into today's dollars, that's about 700 bucks, which is a lot of money. And they continued making these and selling them off. And this would begin a pattern for the two men where they would come up with an idea. Wozniak, being the genius that he was, would create this amazing technical invention, and then Jobs would figure out a way to sell it for a lot of money. But where this pattern would be taken to a whole new level is when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak would read an article in January of 1975. Now, this is a very important date because these two men, they would be transformed by this moment, as would other people in the world at this time. So let's keep that in mind as we go forward. So January 1975, Popular Electronics comes out with their issue. And on front of that issue, on the cover, is a computer known as the Altair. The Altair was the first home computer kit for hobbyists that you could buy. $495, it was this pile of parts, you put it together, you have your first home computer. So Jobs and Wozniak, they read this article and they look at each other and they say, we can do this. And in fact, they think we can take it one step further. Rather than having to put it together yourself, what if we put it together for them? And this caused them to create their own version of the Altair, which became known as the Apple One. Now, as you can see from this photo in the Apple One, it is mainly a motherboard. And that is what they were selling you. They were selling you the motherboard. You still had to do a lot of other things. You had to buy a power supply, a keyboard. You had to buy a case if you wanted it, and a monitor. So it was not an all-in-one package. They ended up making about 200 of the Apple Ones. And at the end of that time, this is when Steve Jobs had a little bit of a revelation, where he said, you know what we need to do? We need to create an all-in-one package where the consumer can have the entire computer together as a single unit, and then we can sell it to the consumer 
fully formed. Now, this was the beginning of the Apple II. And the Apple II would spark a revolution in home computing. So with the Apple II, you had the keyboard, you had the monitor, and they made it very easy to use. The advent of the Apple II came in April of 1977 at the West Coast Computer Fair, and it caused a sensation. And to get a sense of what this was like, I'd like you to see a recreation of this moment from the film Pirates of Silicon Valley. Let's take a look. Nine forty-five. AM or PM? Opens in fifteen minutes. I'm so tired, I can't see straight. <laughs> Steve, you know, all of a sudden we're working harder than our fathers, who we laughed at for how hard they worked. I don't get it. Come on. We gotta change. Change what? Oh my god. Steve. What? What? No. <laughs> Like I have to have a mustache? A suit? You actually bought a suit? Two minutes to ten. What do you think? You think anyone will show up? Of course they're gonna show up. I don't know. Maybe. Is my tie okay? Unbelievable. It was practically like being a rock star or something. And people swarming all over you, hordes of them coming to see this amazing little machine with 62 chips and ICs that make all these colors. Hard plastic molded guys from Microsoft showed up. I mean, how are we to know who they were? Them standing there looking at an empty Altair booth on one side and us on the other. I mean, who would you choose? Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you doing? Steve, I'm Bill Gates. Yeah, hi. Chair of Microsoft? Yeah, nice to see you. Microsoft, we designed somebody had a whole box. Yeah, good to see you. Maybe you just didn't hear you or something. Yeah, maybe. The first time in my life, people are coming to me instead of me going to them. <laughs> Man, this is insanely great. Now, this is the moment that would catapult Apple from a struggling startup into one of the top computer companies in the world. And as a result of the success of the Apple II, this would inspire many other companies to try to get into the home PC market. 
But the company that truly wanted to gain market share was IBM. Now at the time, IBM was a company that specialized in installing very expensive computer systems into businesses. And now they wanted to have a whole division that was dedicated to this home PC market. By July of 1980, they had created their first PC, but they had a problem. They didn't have an operating system for it. And they needed something that was going to be able to run a lot of different software for them. And so as a result of this, they end up eventually purchasing this operating system from a man named Bill Gates, who was the founder of a company called Microsoft. Bill Gates was born in 1955, the same year as Steve Jobs. This is a very auspicious year for computer technology, apparently, in terms of its founders. He was born into an upper-middle-class family. His father was a lawyer. His mother was a very successful businesswoman. In fact, she was very much ahead of her time. She was served on many boards, and she was often the only woman on those boards. Now, Bill Gates, he was a very, very intelligent young boy, and he ended up going to a school at the age of 13 called Lakeside Preparatory School. Now, Lakeside Prep is where he learned how to program. This is the first time that he had access to a computer, and the first program that he created was a game of tic-tac-toe, where the user could play against the computer. Now, as a result of this, he became known kind of as a computer nerd. He's the person you went to in order to get programs accomplished. And in the summer before his junior year of high school, something happened where Lakeside was going to merge with an all-girls school. The all-girls school was shutting down. They were going to come over. And the counselors were having a tough time merging the two schedules together. So they approached Gates and they said to him, would you be able to write a program that would allow us to merge these two schedules together, sorting out all the conflicts? So he said, yeah, he'd be happy to do that. And he ended up working with his friend, Paul Allen, on this program. It took them all summer to get it to work. And in fact, they got it to work only a few hours before the first day of school. They got it running, they got all the schedules printed out, and they were hailed as heroes for this. And word got out that they could do this. And as a result, they ended up getting a lot of work from other schools in the area that called them and said, can you sort our schedules as well? And in fact, their reputation grew so large that at one point they were called by a hydroelectric plant in Vancouver, Washington that was trying to computerize their system. They couldn't do it, and so they called both Paul Allen and Bill Gates out to go and check this out, if they could do it. And they were expecting to talk to two men, but instead, here are these teenage boys. And they did end up hiring them. They took a whole semester off from school so that they could computerize this program. But the moment that would change Bill Gates' life is the same moment that would change Steve Jobs' life. This is the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics with the Altair on the cover. So whereas Jobs and Wozniak saw an opportunity to do something that the Altair wasn't doing, which is to create a full motherboard, Gates saw something very different. He saw an opportunity that nobody else was looking at either because when you built the Altair, the problem was is that you had to know how to program to be able to use it. And most people didn't know how to program. So without that, it was just a big pile of parts. 
So he came up with the idea that he should create a basic operating system for it. So he calls his friend Paul on and he says, hey, let's work on this, let's get it together. And then they go out and they meet with the producer of the Altair and they say, hey, look, we would like you to sell our basic operating system alongside your computer. That way you can sell more computers and we can benefit as well because people will then be able to utilize it. So people start purchasing the operating system that Bill Gates and Paul Allen create. And this is the beginning of Microsoft. So initially, Microsoft is getting some revenue from this. But what happens is that revenue dries up because as people purchase the Altair and they purchase Microsoft's program, they start pirating it. So if a person down the street has Microsoft's basic operating system, they would just install it on their Altair. And this would be a pattern for Microsoft throughout its history, which is that people are constantly pirating their software. And at a certain point, they were on the verge of collapse. They didn't have enough money coming in to be able to support themselves. And this is when Bill Gates found out about IBM's desire to get into the PC market to compete with the Apple II. And so he was able to set up a meeting with IBM. And I'd like you to see a recreation of this moment from the same movie, Pirates of Silicon Valley. You see, by that time, Bill had already figured out that we gotta go right into the belly of the beast, the scariest beast of them all, IBM. IBM. And back then, man, oh, they were like Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, and Vlad the Impaler, all rolled into one. <laughs> but what we were going to do was, we were going to make them love us. Gentlemen, how are you? Nice tie. Thanks. We're over here. Our shirts are as white as theirs. <laughs> we think we have what you need. That's a start. Now, we know that IBM has set up this place to compete head-on with Apple. And that you're gearing up to come out with a personal computer that will wipe them out. So we can get you an operating system. What kind of operating system? It's called DOS. This is amazing. I mean, not just amazing, it's historic. It should be taught in all the history books. I mean, hung and framed in the National Gallery or something. Because this is the instant of creation of one of the greatest fortunes in the history of the world. I mean, Bill Gates is the richest guy in the world because of what started in this room. <laughs> you want to know what else? It wasn't exactly smoke and mirrors. But we didn't have anything. Here we were, this two-bit little outfit telling IBM we had the answer to their problems. The DOS, the disk operating system, to make all those zillion IBM computers compute. I mean, we didn't even remotely own anything like what Bill was selling them. Nada. Zip. Of course, we don't just want to sell it to you outright. We want to be able to license it to you. You want to retain ownership? Right. Well, the profits are in the computers themselves, not this software stuff. Hmm. No big deal. Oh, and one other thing. We have to be able to sell it to other outfits. But there was just one little problem. <laughs> <clears throat> Now, what is so absolutely amazing about this moment? 
is that Bill Gates didn't have an operating system, as you heard. They didn't have anything to sell them. So what he does is he goes to his father and he asks for a $50,000 loan. And then they go and they find a guy who had actually created their operating system and they bought it from him. They bought the rights and they would call it MS-DOS or Microsoft Disk Operating System. And this would be installed on all of the IBM computers. And as you heard him say in this clip, he also wanted to be able to sell it to other computer manufacturers. Now, he was able to pay his father back very quickly because by 1982, they had made three and a half million dollars in profits off of MS-DOS. And by 1985, with the expansion of the computer market and MS-DOS being installed on every computer that was not an Apple II, they ended up having around $24 million in the bank. Now this made Bill Gates a direct competitor with Steve Jobs, who in the early 1980s was working on a brand new kind of computer. It would become known as the Macintosh. And what made the Macintosh unique is that unlike the Apple II or these IBM-based PCs, they were graphical. The Macintosh was a graphical computer. Now, if you had a computer in the early 1980s and you turned it on, this is what you would see. This is called a command prompt. Literally, you had to type in commands to make the computer work. And if you type them in wrong, I know this because I did this a lot, then it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't know what it was supposed to do. But this concept changed in December of 1979, one month after I was born, by the way, when Steve Jobs got a meeting with Xerox. Now today, Xerox is known for being a company that specializes in copiers. But in the 1970s, they had a whole division that was dedicated to innovating new technologies. And one of the technologies that they had innovated was known as a GUI, or a graphical user interface. GUI be from the GU. UI part of graphical user interface. So today, you use GUIs or graphical user interfaces all the time. They're on every computer that you use. They're on the phones that you utilize. They're all over the place. And in fact, Xerox had gone so far in this time and place as to be able to use a mouse to go along with this graphical user interface. They were the first ones to come up with a mouse. Now, you have to realize that in the late 1970s, this was brand new technology. Nobody had ever seen this before. And so when Steve Jobs goes into his meeting with Xerox and they show this to him, he loses it. He sees this and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe that you guys are not using this. This is a gold mine. You people should see this. They need this. And the reason why they were not utilizing it is because the upper management, the executives at Xerox, they didn't really understand what it was that they had. So Steve Jobs, he decided he was going to steal their technology. And over the next four years, he would have his software engineers at Apple create a software that would mimic what Xerox was doing. And this would become the platform that would make the Macintosh unique. The Macintosh was going to be entirely graphical. Now the creation of the Macintosh, it is very much part of Silicon Valley folklore. Because this is where Steve Jobs goes from being a little bit eccentric to being kind of insane, if we're gonna be completely honest. So 
what he does when he's creating the Macintosh is he gets super controlling. He has these very high standards for his engineers, and he was exacting. If you didn't meet what he wanted every single day, he would just fire you and let you go. His engineers were working 90 plus hours a week. He would verbally abuse them all the time. And if he didn't like what you were doing, he would literally delete all of your code. It was something that many people talked about and heard about, and it created this amazing product, but it did so at a great cost. Now, this is a moment where we can look at the positive side of Steve Jobs, because within all of this, yes, he was crazy about it, but he was a visionary. He envisioned a new way of doing computing, a new way that made it accessible to the average person rather than just the computer nerd. He understood innately how to make computers user-friendly. And so he was way ahead of his time in this regard. And he knew that the Macintosh was going to represent an entirely new way of doing computers. It was going to revolutionize the computer industry. And so in 1984 at the Super Bowl, he decided he was going to release a Super Bowl ad to kind of build up hype around the Macintosh. You may remember this. So let's watch this ad. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. We have created for the first time in all history a garden of pure ideology where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a contradictory force. Purification of force is more powerful a weapon than any fleet or army on earth. We are one people. One will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we will bury them with their own confusion. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Now, the Macintosh would not turn out to be the revolution that Jobs had hoped it would be. And the reason why is because it was very expensive. It cost $2,500, which if you convert it into today's money is $6,100. And that's a lot of money to pay for a computer. Most people simply could not afford the Macintosh. And so as a result, this revolution in computing kind of petered out because people simply could not get access to it unless you had a lot of money. Now, at the same time that Jobs was releasing the Macintosh, Apple had paid Microsoft, so Bill Gates, to create software applications for it because they needed applications that would inspire people to want to purchase the Macintosh. So Bill Gates had access to the Macintosh computer and he decided that he was going to try to create a Macintosh ripoff, a piece of software that would mimic what the Macintosh was doing for the PC. And he called this piece of software Windows. Now, today, any computer that's not an Apple, for the most part, uses Windows. But what's amazing about this is that Windows was such a bad knockoff of Macintosh. It came out in 1985, one year after the Macintosh, and it was an awful program. It didn't look nearly as nice as the Macintosh. It ran super slowly. One reviewer compared Windows 1.0 to trying to pour molasses in the Arctic. It was that bad. But 
it didn't matter because it was cheap. It was $100 compared to $2,500, and it was bundled with every new PC. And so in this way, Bill Gates, he was a man who was very practical. He's a man who was in the moment. He was not a visionary like Steve Jobs, but he knew what people wanted, what people needed, and he was able to provide that in the moment. And so as a result, you see a divergence between these two men. So Steve Jobs, he was a perfectionist. He would not put out anything that was not perfect, which of course is the reason why it costs so much money in the end. Whereas Bill Gates, he was willing to put out things that were imperfect. A lot of his programs had errors and glitches in them, but he would improve upon them with every version he would put out. And it would take him six years. In 1990, he put out Windows 3.0, and that was the first version of Windows that was able to even mirror a little bit of what the Macintosh was capable of doing. Now, in that time, of course, he was able to build his company up, and what we know today, today to be true is that Microsoft was the better of the two companies in the 1980s. Microsoft came out on top. Now, why have we taken all this time to talk about these two titans of technology? Well, these two men, they represent a problem that we face as Christians. How do we balance our present needs with future concerns. So the fact is, is that in the time that we're living in right now, there are a lot of needs that we're facing as Christians. In the time of COVID-19, we have to constantly ask ourselves the question, how do we as Christians walk in Jesus's footsteps? How do we live as Jesus lived? How do we sacrifice our own needs for the benefit of others? How do we serve the least and the lost? And in this day and time where we can't be together, we have to be shrewd about this. And in fact, that is the whole point of the parable that we read earlier, the parable of the dishonest manager. So this parable is really interesting because this manager, he's been defrauding his master. And there's a day of reckoning that's coming because the master figures this out. And so his back is against the wall and he has to figure out how he's going to get out of this situation. So he adjusts, he goes out to all of the people who owe his master money, the debtors. And he says, look, how much do you owe? Cut it in half. Just give me something so that I can take it to my master. And so on that day of reckoning, he comes and he brings a lot of the debt that is owed to the master. And the master is really impressed by this. He's impressed by his ability to kind of work through this difficult situation where his back was against the wall and he didn't really know what to do. Now this is the Bill Gates methodology, right? Bill Gates, he goes into his meeting with IBM and he fools them into thinking he has an operating system he does not have and then he sells them that operating system which in turn makes him wildly successful. Now we need to be shrewd in the same way right now. With our backs against the wall because of COVID-19, we have to figure out different ways of serving the needs in the world around us since we cannot gather together. And we have been able to do that. One of the very unique ways that we have been able to help people is through our community relief fund. You all have given more than $43,000 to this particular fund, and that has allowed us to help people who are in really difficult circumstances. So because of you, we have had the opportunity to be able to help people who are down on their rent. They're going to get kicked out of their homes. We've been able to help them pay their rent. We've been able to help people who need to pay utilities, as well as being able to eat food or even make car payments. So because of you and what you've been doing, we've been able to 
really help a lot of people who are with their backs literally against the wall. We've also been very shrewd in the way that we've been able to get church out to the masses. So long before this, as you know, we've had an online presence. Many churches did not, and they were caught flat-footed in all of this. But we have been able to expand our online presence as a result of being in this situation. And so we've been reaching a lot more people. But beyond these present concerns, we also need to be looking 10 to 15 years down the road. So how are things going to be changing for the church as we go into the future? Because as we can see, and as you know, the culture is shifting and moving in a direction where religious affiliation is no longer something that people want to be a part of. So how do we stay one step ahead of the curve so that we don't get left behind? How do we remain relevant? And this is what we were reading this morning from Isaiah, where God speaks and says, I'm about to do a new thing. Now, this is a really important idea for us, because so often we think what we have right now is what we need, but God is always doing something new. And when we read that, we say, oh, well, that's, of course, talking about Christianity, and that was the new thing. No, that was the new thing at that time, but God is always doing something new. God is always asking us to take what we've done, to set it aside, and to see this new thing that God is pushing our way. And this is the same thing that Steve Jobs does when he's looking forward towards the trends in technology that are coming five to ten years down the road. He's trying to anticipate what's going to happen, and we need to anticipate the changing religious landscape, because if we keep doing what we've always done, then eventually we truly are going to get left behind. And this is why the leadership in this church, the session, the elders who are responsible for pushing this church forward, they are innovating right now. They're trying to look at different and new ways of reaching out and doing mission. We are looking at the question all the time, if the people will not come to us and can't come to us, how can we go to them and present them with a message that matters and is relevant to who they are? In a very real sense, we need to be both of these men. We need to be both like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. We need to be concerned with the present moment, and we also need to be looking towards the future. But this is a very fine balance, because if you do either one too much, it's going to hurt you. So as it was with Steve Jobs, the Macintosh was too far ahead of its time in many ways. It was just too expensive and so it wasn't available to the masses. He was too far ahead of the curve. Whereas Bill Gates, he was right on top of things, but if you stay where Bill Gates is for too long, then you're going to get left behind as well. So Bill Gates, as an example, they were on top of the computer world for many, many years, but then in the mid-2000s, all of a sudden, smartphones came along, and they said at Microsoft, well, smartphones are never going to replace computers, and of course, who started the smartphone revolution? None other than Steve Jobs with the iPhone. And so they were caught flat-footed, and it's taken them all this time until now really to get caught up again. And so as a result, I think we really need to be like both of these men. And I think what they're teaching us is that we need to be flexible. We need to be willing to look at new things, to change, to adapt, to try new things as a church. Now, 
As I say this, I think it is rather difficult because flexibility is not a word that is often associated with churches. In fact, Christians are notorious for being inflexible, where even minor changes are met with fierce resistance in many churches. And the fact is, the reason why this occurs is because people say, I want what I've always had. I don't want things to change. We've got to do it the way we've always done it. And that's because tradition is comforting. And I understand why tradition is comforting. But at the same time, I think that if I could go back, and if I could rewrite Paul's Fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, I would add one into it, which is flexibility. Because flexibility is so central to the Christian walk. When we are flexible, you can not only enjoy abundance in the present, but you can also enjoy longevity in the future. And for me, what I really believe is that as Christians, if we are really in sync with God, then what that means is we're always going to be called to do the same things we've always done, but in new ways. That is essentially how God operates. The same thing that we've always done, but we have to do it in this new and inventive way. And that's what I want to call on you as the congregation to do. You are not here in front of me so that I can say this to you directly. But I think it's so important that in this time that we are in right now, that we look towards the future and that we are shrewd in the present. We need to do both of these things. I think together, if we can be a Christian that constantly is serving the needs of those who are in need right now in our world, and if we can look towards the future, then we will have achieved something remarkable. Because not only can we make an impact on our community right here and right now, but we can become a leader and an example of what it means to be the church in the 21st century. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.